The Bible is full of colorful characters that many of us learned about as children. But there's a lot that sing-alongs and felt boards can't really teach us about these characters. After all, these are people that really lived and died. People that really failed and triumphed, learned and listened, doubted and believed. Let's dig into these stories together, trusting that they've been passed down to us for the same reason these ancient people lived through them, to develop some character of our own. I'm delighted to be here with you this morning and honored always to have the opportunity to share my heart on a Sunday morning. My name is Brett. I'm one of the elders here at Element Church, and it's just a joy to be part of this community. And I love this series. I love going through and talking about these characters from the Bible, very often characters that we don't talk about regularly, or characters who we talked about when we were little kids in Sunday school classes that we got some perception of who they were and what they were about and then you grow up and you read it again and you're like, wait, I missed that. (laughs) I didn't see that the way it really was. I kind of saw it through the lens of an eight-year-old mind. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about a character that I have a lot of affection for, but is a little bit of a difficult character for us to love. I want to start this morning with a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, from the message paraphrase, says this. And this is Paul writing. And then God told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer, These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks. I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. The narrative of the Bible is launched with a man named Abraham, who God made three promises to. The first promise is that from his family would be a great nation. And that happened in the Bible by the beginning of the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. They were a great nation, a lot of people that God had preserved. And in the story of that book of Exodus, the people leave Egypt to fulfill the second promise that God made to Abraham, that that nation of people would have a land, a place that was theirs. And that place was Israel, this amazing spot right in the middle of what was then the known world. And they had that as they left Egypt together and came to that land. Now, there were a lot of detours. They spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness because they were knuckleheads. 
But finally they took the land and Joshua led them in. And they conquered this land of Israel. Now they did not do what God asked them to do, which was to also conquer and run out all the other surrounding nations. They didn't do that. They paid the price for that for a very long time. But one of the interesting things is that when they set up this nation together, typically they would have a king, someone who was in charge, and that king would have a standing army to defend his will in that nation. They didn't do any of that after they conquered that land. God said, I will be your king. You can trust in me. And so whenever there was a problem, God would raise someone up. They called those people judges. And they would often raise an army, raise an alarm, become a political figure or a leader, do the important thing that was needed to be done in that moment. And when that unrest was over, that judge would step down. God would be in control. Now, I love the book of Judges. And when I've had the opportunity to speak, I've talked about multiple judges. I talked last year in the character series about Ehud, which was a weird choice, but awesome story. I've talked about Gideon before, who's another character whose story I love. But those in some ways, particularly the story of Gideon, is an easy story for us to love from this book of Judges. Harder story for us to love is the story from the book of Judges that's actually the most famous. Story of Samson. Samson. Tough guy to love. He has four chapters devoted to him in the book of Judges. You've probably, if you grew up in church or reading the Bible, have heard some of these stories of Samson. And while they are amazing and impressive, on a physical level, there's a lot of ugly in these stories too. Now if I were to compare Samson to someone that you know well, my best comparison would be, have you seen the movie Beauty and the Beast? The character Gaston is pretty much Samson. And you know the song that Gaston sings. And they go down the list of all of the things that no one can do quite like Gaston. Those that are familiar with the movie, sing out a couple. Well, shout out a couple. What are some of the amazing things that Gaston can do that no one can do as well as Gaston? Spit. He's especially good at expectorating. What else is, is Gaston really good at? Fighting? Biting, that's right. He is an incredible biter. World-class biter. Anyone else can remember anything? If we had the kids in here, he's handsome. No one's as handsome as Gaston. Anything else? He eat, no one can eat as many eggs as Gaston. He is the greatest of egg eaters. No one's slick as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston's. No one's neck is incredibly thick as Gaston's. Uh, let's see. No one fights like Gaston. In a wrestling match, no one bites like Gaston. There's no one as burly and brawny. As you see, he's got biceps to spare. Not a bit of his, his scraggly or scrawny. 
And that's right, every last inch of him is covered in hair. He's the hairiest. No one hits like him. No one spits like him. He eats all these eggs. No one shoots like Gaston. No one goes tromping around wearing boots like Gaston. He uses antlers in all of his decorating. He's a man among men, the hero next door, who's a super success. Don't you know? Can't you guess? Ask his fans and his five hangers on. There's just one guy in town who's got it all down, and his name is Gaston. Gaston. Now, that's Samson, the greatest at all of it. No one fights like Samson. No one kills lions with his bare hands like Samson. No one creates riddles, jokes like Samson. No one kills a thousand of his enemies in one day on a hill with the jawbone of a donkey like he was some ancient Jewish Jackie Chan like Samson. He was amazing. He was amazing. And he lived and was called at a time when the Philistines were oppressing the people of Israel. The Bible literally calls them tyrants. They were tyrants. Essentially, in many ways, enslaving the people of Israel. And God rose up Samson. Often, he would raise up a judge, and the judge would raise an army. In Samson's case, he was the army. He was protecting these people, keeping them safe. He was their champion. This was a noble work God had given him to do. But just like Gaston, with all of his impressive physical talents, he was not so impressive as a human being. In fact, he was a big mess. He was egocentric. He was mean. If there, in every single story nearly, of the stories of Samson, there are talk of vengeance and revenge and him getting back at people that had done things to him. He was fighting often for himself and his own ego in these battles, just like Gaston. And you can see if you watch that movie, Beauty and the Beast, why it'd be so easy to fall into that trap. Because when no one's as good as you, as powerful as you, smart as you, no one, when they try to trap you in their city, can run out and literally take the city gates with all the bars and poles and all of it and just not only tear it down, but run like five miles with it and drop it in the middle of nowhere laughing the whole time. If you could do that, pretty difficult to not feel like you are it like you are amazing, and why wouldn't you deserve all of it, all of it? But in that sense of ego and pride and lust, Samson is so flawed. He's such a mess. And he ends up giving away to a woman that he lusts for the secret to his great power, which is his hair. And while he's asleep, she cuts it all off. 
and he is abducted, taken, bound. His strength leaves him. Spirit of God leaves him. And he's beaten and bruised. Maybe for the first time ever in his life. Because if you're Samson, you probably don't bruise. This may have been his first bruise, his first cut. He may not even have felt pain in his life before in a real way. This was potentially his first pain. And as a hero, a man who saw what he wanted, who fought with his fists, and his hand-eye coordination must have been off the charts. They took away his eyes. While he was weak, they poked out his eyes. I have made my living in the world as a visual artist. I cannot imagine how I would feel if I lost my eyes. In many ways, like everything I am is connected to that. And in many ways, everything Samson was, was not just his physical brute strength, but his ability to see, to connect, to go after. He was at his heart a, re a rebel and an achiever. To lose his eyes, to lose his strength, to be beaten, to go from a champion of your people to nothing, to lose everything. Now, we usually just put Samson in a box as a morality tale and say, this is what happens to you when you don't follow God, when you get egotistical, when you become overcome with lust. They beat you and they take your eyes and they throw you in a dungeon and you just thresh wheat. That's what will happen to you, little boy, so don't do it. It's this oversimplified morality tale. Why do we do that? It's because we have a very difficult time feeling okay about this story. Feeling okay about Samson. We love stories like Gideon. A man who has nothing. A man who God calls out and says, Gideon, I want you to be my ambassador to the world. And Gideon says, not me. I'm nothing. I am no one. I come from the weakest tribe, and of the tribe, I come from the weakest clan, and of that clan, I come from the stupidest family, and of that family, I am the ugliest, the least competent. That is what he says. And then he leads an army to victory. We love that. We love normal men that build giant boats that save every animal on the planet. That story's awesome. We love a Savior born in a manger of nothing who rises up to become a spiritual king. We love a man rejected by his community who will never get an education because he was not smart enough, who someone said, all you can do is fish, who becomes a mouthpiece, a voice for God in a new movement of Christianity that was the Apostle Peter. We love those stories. The scrappy underdog. Rocky Balboa. The man who was nothing, who defeated 
a god. Literally, Apollo. Creed, the god, the mortal man of nothing, who takes down the legend. We love that story. We'll eat that all day. That's not the story of Samson. Samson is born with everything. He's no underdog. He's got it all. From the day of his birth, an angel came twice to talk to his parents before he was born. There's a whole chapter just about conversations that an angel has with his parents saying, this kid's going to be awesome. He's going to be awesome. Don't drink any alcohol before he's born. That's how awesome he's going to be. This angel was telling them what we now know through medical science. Don't drink alcohol while you're pregnant. Nobody knew that back then. An angel told them that's how special Samson was. We got specific things to make sure you take all your prenatal vitamins for this kid. Because he's going to be amazing. Like John the Baptist and Jesus when the angels came to tell their families they were coming. Special. We like special, but then we don't like it when special goes ugly. When all of that privilege, when all of that power is connected with so much flaw, with so much messiness. Now, we live in a culture where Frankly, we even inherited a sense that that sort of narrative, that Samson sort of narrative, is not okay. It's not okay. For a long time, our nation, our collective story together, we were the scrappy underdog. We were the scrappy underdog altogether. There were all these great powers, but we were the ones as Americans that rose up, that rose up to be the scrappy underdog. We went into World War II as scrappy underdogs. We were the David coming in to slay Goliath. We did it. We did it. But then all of a sudden we went from little boy David to King David. To a power, a superpower in the world. And we went into Vietnam and other eras, other things in the 1960s and we realized... We're kind of a mess. We're kind of a mess. We're flawed. We're flawed. And our national narrative became the narrative of the flawed hero. That's not okay with us. We're not okay with that. We are fighting against that, against being that. We do not want to be that. And yet, everywhere, everywhere we look, even unto today, we find ourselves in that situation. Not the scrappy underdog anymore. The flawed hero. And so at every part of us, we fight against it. Even in our deepest level as individuals. When everything is going well in our lives, we're very comfortable with the heroic story. We're heroes. We're awesome. I'm awesome. Look what I did. But when things go wrong in our lives, we immediately want to go back to the scrappy underdog story. Wasn't my fault. 
It was beyond my control. There's much more comfort in that than there is in the idea that, yes, I was a hero. Yes, I had the power. And I blew it. I blew it. I didn't do it. I was selfish. I didn't listen. I didn't hear the voices around me. I just did what I wanted for me. We can't stand that story. We will fight against that story and go from hero to underdog as quickly as we can. Because that's a super uncomfortable place to be. And so why do we not like this story of Samson? Why does it bother us so much? Because it is one of our unacceptable stories. And in fact, we are in a place where the flawed hero is actually the villain. Is actually the villain. In us. As individuals. And out here, culturally. What do we do about that? What do we do? If the story of Samson ended right here, where I ended it a moment ago, I would have no answers for you. We would be stuck in this endless loop of underdogs defeating heroes who were fallen to become the hero only to fall, to be defeated by another underdog, to be defeated. We would enter this endless cycle of underdogs defeating fallen heroes that as a culture, as a world, would get us nowhere. But that's not where this story ends. Samson, a broken man, beaten in every way imaginable, physically, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, has spent day after day, week after week, month after month, at a grinder, like spinning a wheel to grind grain. And the Philistines, the tyrants, say, let's have a party to celebrate our God. Our God deserves a party. We took down Israel. We took down Samson. And they have created this beautiful temple to honor their God. It's their finest architectural achievement. It is so big and so sturdy that they can actually put people on the roof of it, sitting up there, looking down. That's how sturdy this thing is. And they say in their great amusement, where all of the leaders of the Philistines gather together in this place to celebrate, they say, let's bring in Samson. Let's make fun of him. Let's throw stuff at him and laugh at him. Him and his great God, who has been so humbled, brought so low. Bring out Samson. They bring him out. And I can imagine as he walked out, the uproar must have been tremendous for this flawed, broken hero. And he's, there's no rhetoric from him. There's no jokes, no boasts, no riddles, no bravado, no jawbones of donkeys. And they walk him out, and he says to the servant who's walking him out, would you guide me 
I have no eyes. Would you guide me over to the two pillars that are here in this room? Maybe he had seen the room before when he had eyes and knew. They walk him over to those pillars. Something has happened over time. The lazy Philistines didn't realize that his hair had grown back. Enough. Enough. And in that moment, Samson prays. In a way that in those four cha- three chapters, four chapters previously, he has never prayed before. There is only one other time in the narrative when he even speaks to God. And it's to beg God for water because didn't he deserve it because of all the Philistines he had defeated? God, you owe me water. Give me some water. But the wording here is different. It's different. Judges chapter 16, verse 26. Samson says, he cried out to God, Master God, Oh, please look on me again. Oh, please, give strength yet once more. Strength once more. It's the moment where for the first time in the whole story, Samson acknowledges that this great gift, this great power, was not from himself, was not his. It was God's. And everything Samson had done was not his own. It was in partnership with a power so much bigger than him. Partnership between him and God. A life lived together with the Spirit of God. Samson had not been willing to acknowledge it before. God used him anyway as a tool for the people of Israel. But in this moment, Samson surrenders. For the first time in his life, maybe, in all of the 20 years that he judged Israel, he surrendered. And he says these words that for me are so powerful. God, me and you together. One more time. One more time. It's like the boxer in a 15-round match who's reached the 14th round, and his trainer says, you're done. Let me throw in the towel. And the boxer says, I got one more. I got one more. Let me go again. The person Who knows? Their marriage is finished. It's done. Everyone is saying, just walk away. Who says, give me one more round. Let's go at this again. One more time. The person who has lost it all in addiction, who's destroyed their family, destroyed their finances, destroyed their body, destroyed their life, who cries out to God and says, I've ruined it all, 
but God together. One more time. One more time. That spirit of hopefulness that you are not done, that is flawed and broken and messy, is discouraged and unraveled, as revealed as you are, with all of your mistakes, all of your vulnerabilities, all of your pain, to say, God, coming back, surrendering to you, let's go at this thing again one more time. Samson reaches out his hands, and in a final act of will and strength and inspiration, pushes these pillars apart, and the entire building falls down. And every enemy, every tyrant, oppressing every person in that land of Israel, goes down. Every pain, every hurt these Israelites have suffered for 40 years, bondage to these Philistines, is ended. Not with an army, not on a battlefield, but in a single moment of surrender. Surrender. Calling out to God and saying, God, me and you again. We are an amazing team. In those moments, one more time together. I look at me, I look at us, sitting in this room, but I look at us as a nation, as a society, as a world, I can find all the flaws in me, all of my messes. I could list them off in four chapters, like Samson. And I could say, this is who I am, this is all I am. And it was right and fair for me to be destroyed, exposed, ruined, and broken. And to be done for the final chapter to have been written, that was fair, just. We would all say, good story. Good story. That sounds like a good story to me. But what if instead the story is in the midst of all that ugliness? to call out to God as individuals, as a community, together as a society. Say, God, we call you into our lives. Let's go again one more time for the good of all. You're a mess. I am too. It's okay to be a mess. That is the power of Jesus Christ working in every single one of us. That we can call out and surrender and say, God, in my brokenness, in my mess, in my nothingness, with all that I am, I say to you, return to me. I have left, but return. And together, let's go again. 
Here's this passage again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. And then we'll pray. And then God told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations cut me down to size. Abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks. I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Let's pray. God, we invite you into our lives, into our hearts, into the spaces where we feel the most broken, the most ruined, where we feel that everything is wrong, where we feel and know even that we are wrong, that we have messed it up, that despite all the good that we have been given, despite all the blessings and the privilege we have in our life, that we have not been good stewards. But God, we ask you to work in that. We know that you are powerful to redeem that, to take all that is ugly in us, the bad choices and the bad decisions, to use them for your good, to ultimately use them as a blessing for us and for the world. We surrender our lives, our past, our present, and our future. We give them to you. In the name of Jesus.